In pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential. 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 Jesus House for All Nations. This message has been recorded live at Jesus House for All Nations. God bless you. Amen. Praise God. Today, I'm going to start a series on spiritual warfare. I've kind of had the privilege of sharing nuggets um, uh, at the, day, the evening sessions uh, in, the, in, the, in the time before we intercede. But today, we start what will be a more robust and hopefully more complete series of teachings on spiritual warfare. So, Father, we thank you and bless you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will grant utterance, you will grant a listening ear, you will bring revelation, that you will open up the Word of God and show us the mind of Christ, that we might stand in the victory that has been won for us at the cross of Calvary, in Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen, Amen. Amen. Let's settle one thing. We are in a war. Sometimes it might not look like it because we're busy with life in a natural sense. But believe me, we are in a war. Every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every year, there's a battle that is raging and we are participants in the battle, whether we like it or not. Uh, You can't really opt out of the battle. The battle involves you, whether you know or not, that there is a fierce war that is raging around us. The moment you are born, and especially the moment you are born again, The moment you commit yourself to Christ, you're part of this war that is raging. Now, the enemy we face would love to have you on two extreme sides of a spectrum with regards to the war, with regards to his existence, with regards to his antics, and with regards to his own army. He would love, on one extreme, love you to be oblivious. And usually we say blissfully oblivious, but there's no bliss in this. He would love you to be oblivious to him, to his antics, to his army, and especially to the fact that we are in a war. He would love you to just get on with life, pursue the pleasures of life. Search for the good life. Enjoy the good life. Just try and just, you know, enjoy, eat, drink, uh, do the nice things, travel, listen to lovely music, have great friends around you. Don't get too involved in this thing to do with Satan, demons, a war. No, just... Why don't you just love God and leave it at that? Just, you know, enjoy yourself. 
And while you're at it, enjoy church. But don't get involved and don't understand that there is a war. He would love that. He would love you on that same side of the extreme, or that same extreme of this spectrum, to be just in, in pursuit of the things of life, busy trying to make a life, work hard, get a mortgage, buy a nice home, upgrade to a better home, have a nice car, you know, forge ahead in your career, acquire skills, you know, do all the things that can make a mark in this world, but don't get involved and don't understand all this stuff about warfare and principalities and powers and thrones and dominions. Don't understand all that. He would love you to be so intellectually sophisticated that this whole thing about devils and demons and principalities and powers and thrones and dominions and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places and unclean spirits, that this thing just seems like a bit of nonsense because of your intellectual sophistication. Now, all this is despite the fact that these things are mentioned in the Bible page after page. Despite the fact that the Bible does talk about him in, in various guises as Satan, as Lucifer, as the fallen day star, as our adversary, as the tempter, page after page of the Bible. Despite the fact that the Bible does talk about unclean spirits and demons and Jesus' first ministry, public ministry in the, in the Gospel of Mark was to engage an unclean spirit. And consequently after, he spends his time teaching, preaching, and casting out unclean spirits. But he would love you to just think that this, this is just not the issue. He would love you to think that it is possible to be a good Christian without being involved in any of these things. On one side of the extreme, on one extreme, pardon me, of the spectrum. On the other extreme, he would love you to be fascinated with him, consumed by him, an unhealthy interest in him. And there are a lot of people, certainly a, a large enough number of people in the body of Christ, and that's where they find themselves. They think about him all the time. They hear him all the time, more than they hear God in, in most cases. They study him. Every prayer is about him, against him. They really have an understanding, an unhealthy one, but a deep one, of him, his army, how he operates. They spend their lives and specialize in that. He would love that because he understands that he can instigate fear from that place. He understands that what you look at consistently becomes what determines and what, what, what determines how your life is formed. But then we don't want to be on either side. In a sense, we want to find ourselves in the middle ground. And the middle ground is the Bible ground where our knowledge of him our knowledge of his antics, our knowledge of his strategies, his wiles, as the Bible calls it, comes from the Word of God. I say to people that I don't need to read another book about Satan 
What the Bible tells me is more than enough. Anything else, God did not feel I needed to know that so that I can establish victory. And so we get the right balance. That's where we want to be. Where we are not living in fool's paradise. We are not an ostrich that has stuck his head in the ground. Pretending like this, like we're not in a war. We understand we're in a war. We understand the terms of the warfare. We have a book that explains it all to us. We have become skilled in the use of the weapons of war. We know how to establish our victory. We are not fascinated with, with him. We understand that he exists. We understand what the Bible tells us about him. And as a result, we can engage to achieve victory in this war. Can someone say amen to that? And it's a war between two kingdoms. We understand that. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of darkness. It's a war in which both kingdoms want to advance their own agenda. On one side, the kingdom of God, we have at the head of that kingdom our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Can someone say amen to that? On the other side, the other kingdom, the head of that kingdom and the head of the army of that kingdom, our adversary Satan, the devil Lucifer. And how did this whole thing start? Ezekiel, the 20th chapter, verses 11 to 19. The Bible gives us, as we build scripture upon scripture, an idea of how this whole thing started. Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 19. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, when you read that, you think initially on the surface that it's addressing a physical king, a physical person. But then you understand as you read it that it cannot be the physical king of Tyre. And you're reminded of Jesus' rebuke of Satan when Peter was standing before him. And he turns when Peter advances an agenda that is not God's agenda. He turns around to Peter who is standing physically before him. And addressing Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter was one of the closest and the one he eventually handed the, the, the church to. So, of course, even though Peter was standing physically, he was actually addressing the spirit that had got Peter to advance an agenda that was not God's. Does this make some sense? Yeah. So in the same way, the prophet Ezekiel in the first 11 verses starts by addressing the, the physical king of Tyre. He declares to him about his mortality, but you shall be a man, not a God, he says in verse 9, in the hand of him who slays you. So we know then that he's dealing with a man. In verse, in verse 1 he says, Yet you are a man, not a God. By the time he gets to verse 11, in the same way that Jesus was addressing the spirit, he now starts to talk about the spirit behind the king 
that had driven the king to the wickedness he showed against the children of Israel. And as he starts to talk, we realize that it's no other spirit. It isn't just one of the other hierarchy, the, anybody in the hierarchy of the kingdom of darkness. It's actually Satan himself. Listen to what he says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Instantly, by then, we know that this is not the physical king he's addressing. For the physical king was far from perfection. Far from being full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And the physical king certainly was not in the Garden of Eden. We know that in the Garden of Eden, there were, ba were basically three people apart from the, whole, the, the presence of God and God himself that saturated it. In the Garden of Eden, there was Adam, there was Eve, and there was the serpent. And so when he now addresses someone and says, you were in the Garden of Eden, we know it's not Adam or Eve, then it must be the serpent. It must be Satan himself. He says, you were in the Garden of, you were in, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, and onyx, and jasper, and sapphire, and turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He, we, he, the Bible tells us that part of how he was created, part of him woven into his being was this most awesome music machine, timbrels and pipes that was part of him when he was created. We will understand as we go on that part of his assignment when he was created as an archangel in heaven was to lead the worship of God, to lead the worship of God in heaven. And he was created for it. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your way, in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you. And I turned you into ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at, at, at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Amen? That's the first inkling we get as to the identity of, who, of this adversary, this head of this kingdom... That is ranged against us. But the Bible goes on to confirm over and over again. And also to confirm how he was ejected from heaven. Revelations, the 12th chapter, verses 7 to 9. And war broke out in heaven. Michael the archangel and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they were not strong enough and did not prevail. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. The age-old serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. He who continually deceives and seduces the entire inhabited world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down to him. 
there was war in the heavens. And we'll find out in the book of Isaiah exactly what caused the war in the heavens. And Archangel Michael was dispatched with a host of angels to go and settle the matter that had arisen in heaven. And in settling the matter, he overcomes that age-old adversary, Satan, and he throws him out of heaven with a group of angels who had joined him in his war effort. Isaiah buttresses that truth that Satan was cast out of the heavens and gives us the reason why. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. <coughs> How are you falling from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning? You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to the heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. That gives us the reason that one day he woke up in heaven, or one day in heaven and he decided that he wanted to be like God. Why can't he be God? And that God saw the rebellion in his heart. And in heaven, no trace of rebellion, no trace of iniquity is allowed. And Archangel Michael was dispatched to go and throw him out of heaven. And you see his arrogance and his pride revealed in those I will statements. I will ascend to the heaven. I will set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the heavens and be like the most high. But instead, he was brought down to the place of the dead. Jesus confirms this when he sends his disciples out and empowers them, gives them authority. And this is an encouragement for the church today. Because the authority they had, they had, and yet Jesus hadn't even gone to the cross. That tells you that whatever authority they had was nothing compared to the authority that you and I have after Jesus has gone to the cross. Can someone say amen? But he sends his disciples out, and when they go out, they encounter people who are oppressed by evil spirits, demons, unclean spirits. And in the encounter... By the name of Jesus which they use, the people are delivered from the spirits. So they come back after they've gone out excited. And they say to Jesus that even the demons are subject to us in your name. Luke 10 verse 17 to 18. The Bible says the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even de the demons are subject to us in your name. And then he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Of course, he goes on to say to them that demons being subject to you in my name is not something that should excite you. That should happen. It's normal. He says what you should be excited about is the fact that your name is registered in the book of life, that you have salvation. Amen? That's more exciting. But then that demons are subject to you, that's normal. That's what happens to every believer. Demons are supposed to be subject to you. The kingdom of darkness is subject to you. 
All power in heaven and on earth was given to him and he transferred it to you and I. So they are subject to us. But he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that really is the situation where he has been thrown out of heaven. And what we have is an angry, dethroned archangel who has an axe to grind with God. And his wrath, his anger, is exacerbated by what he knows about his end. Because he knows how it will end. He knows what the Bible tells us in Revelations, the 20th chapter and the 10th verse, concerning his end. It doesn't matter how much evil he brings about. He knows that when this thing is over, and it will be, that this is exactly my fate. And what is his fate? Revelations 20 verse 10. The Bible says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He knows. In fact, I say to people that his thrashing around is like when you cut off the head of a snake. And it looks like the snake still has life in it as it thrashes around. But really the snake is dead. But it's life ebbing out of it. And eventually it falls down dead because the head has been cut off. Satan's faith has been sealed. In, at the end of this thing, he has no choice. He's going to be thrown into the lake that is burning forever. And that is where he is going to spend eternity. He cannot change. And he knows that. And so that increases the anger he has. He would love to retaliate. He would love to hurt God. But it's such a ridiculous thought. Because him and God are not opposites and equals. He's a created being. God is the uncreated creator. He can't be everywhere at the same time. God is everywhere at the same time. All power definitely does not belong to him. All power belongs to God. You know, whilst we grew up in school, in, 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 in primary school uh, back in Nigeria, there was a phrase we would use, you know, especially when there were altercations, where we say to each other, uh, who's your mate? Yeah, am I your mate? Now, it's the same thing with God and Satan. They are not mates. They are not equals and opposites. You know, they, there's nothing, there's no comparison between them. There's God, God, and God alone. And then there are created beings of which Satan is one, an unemployed archangel that just has found work for himself. But then, since he can't retaliate, he can't hurt God, he can't touch God, the next best thing would be to touch what is dear to God's heart. To destroy, to bring shame, humiliation, pain, darkness, into the lives of those who are dear to God's heart. To spoil God's creation. And in doing that, hopefully he can touch God's heart. To desecrate what is pure. Destroy what God has built. You see, if I can't touch the father, if I can touch the children, then maybe I can hurt the father. Does this make some sense? And so the Apostle Peter warns us, knowing that this is the case, that there is an enemy who has been thrown down from the heavens. And that this enemy is filled with anger, wrath. And this enemy wants to get back at God. And the way he feels to do that is if he can touch what is dear to God. 
bring what is dear to God to a place of pain and hopefully transfer by proxy some of that pain to God. If he can desecrate, make unholy what God has made holy. If he can corrupt what was created incorruptible. If he can tarnish what was created to bring beauty to God, then maybe he can harm God. So Peter says this to us in 1 Peter, the 5th chapter and the 8th verse. Be sober, be vigilant. Now why does he ask us to be sober and vigilant? To be alert, aware, not like the ostrich not having the ostrich syndrome. Be, be aware. Know what is happening. And then be vigilant. Be on your guard. He says, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's what he does. He walks about like a roaring lion. In, 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 in Job, the first chapter, God says to him, where, where are you coming from? He says, walking around the earth to and fro. That's what he does. Every second, every minute, whilst we're sleeping, whilst some of us have no idea, he's walking around looking for who he will devour, whose life he will tear, about, tear, tear apart, which family he will blight, which marriage he will destroy, which child he will trap in an addiction, which, who, who he will get into sexual immorality and desecrate the body or the institution of marriage. He's looking for who he'll devour, who he'll put in a dark place, in a dark hole, in the, in, 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 under a blanket of depression. He's looking for who he'll devour, what nation he will destroy, what war he will cause, what leader he will cause to, to go in the, in the wrong direction who he will cause to stand against the church, the chosen and the elect of God. He's looking for who he'll devour, what life he can destroy, what life he can ruin. He's looking for who he'll devour, who he can tear apart. And let no one think that they, are, they can keep out of the war. You can't. If he could tempt Jesus Christ at Try to tempt him. How many know that that puts all of us in play? Because if he goes after Jesus, then rest assured he's coming, he's coming after you. And he did tempt Jesus. Matthew, the fourth chapter. In fact, Jesus had to overcome that temptation before he went into ministry. It was necessary for him to conquer those appetites. Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 to 3. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He tempted, and you read the rest of it. He tempted him by appealing to his appetites, hoping that he would fall in temptation. And the plan would have ground to a halt. If he went after Jesus, rest assured, He's going and has gone after you and I. His mission is made clear by Jesus himself. The assignment of this kingdom. The purpose of this war. What drives him is made clear by Jesus himself. John the 10th chapter and the 10th verse. The thief, another name for him. Does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus goes on to say, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. No scripture puts more clearly the mission statements of both kingdoms. On one side, the thief comes in his, with his kingdom 
with his resources, his army, his followers. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now, sadly, when you look around the world, you can see his fingerprints in so many places. When you think about people who are, who are doing things like trafficking people in sex slavery, young children who are being abused, you know, you think about you know, marriages that are collapsing. You think about sexual immorality that's rife. You, you think about the feuds and the disagreements that exist in families. You, think, you see somebody who's trapped in their addiction to drugs or pornography. You know that this is the foot fingerprint of Satan. You see how he destroys families, kills dreams, how he takes over people's minds, how he traps people in a dark cave of blackness and hopelessness. You know, this can only be the handiwork of Satan. You look around and see how people kill each other without feeling anything as they take another life. You know that this can only be the handiwork of Satan. Kill, steal, and to destroy. But we are glad that Jesus lays down the gauntlet to him by saying, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Can someone say amen? amen. So yes, there's darkness. Yes, there's evil. But whenever the light of God shines into the darkness, the darkness has no choice but to recede. Amen? I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He opposes God's agenda. He opposes God's plans. He opposes God's purposes. He's still desperate to be worshipped. He's created an alternative kingdom for himself of followers. He's the custodian of evil. He's behind every evil scheme here on earth. He hates me. He hates you. He will do anything, mobilizing all his resources to bring pain, sadness, shame, sorrow, destruction, darkness to your life and to my life. And if he can, his greatest prize is an eternal separation from God. That he can get someone to be eternally, as we cross into eternity, separated from God. But the good news is that God knows. And that before the foundations of the earth, God knew. You see, the beauty about God is that he's not like you and I. He doesn't live in time. Before in the beginning, there was God. After the end, there will be God. You see, the Bible describes him as the God who sees the end from the beginning. And so he knew that this was going to happen. How many know that man's fall in Genesis, the third chapter, did not catch God by surprise? How many know that? How many know that? The rest of you don't know that. Yeah? You think God was surprised? Oh my God, what has, what has happened? Man has fallen. You think that's how God works? No. God sees the end from the beginning. Nothing catches God by surprise. He has perfect knowledge. You see, you and I have knowledge that we acquire. So we will know things. Tomorrow, how many know you will know new things? Yeah? God does not have tomorrow to know new things. He knows everything. He has perfect knowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. And so he knew man was going to fall. How many, how many, how many know that God knew that there was going to be war in heaven? How many know that? Before it happened. How many know that God knew that Satan was going to be thrown out? How many know that God knew that Satan was going to prosecute a war against his elect, his chosen, his loved ones? How many know that? So how many think that God had a plan? 
even before it happened. I want to share that plan with you. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 8, the Passion Translation. However, there is a wisdom that we continually speak of when we are among the spiritually mature. That's you. It's wisdom that didn't originate in this present age, nor did it come from the rulers of this age who are in the process of being dethroned. Instead, Paul says, we continually speak of this wonderful wisdom that comes from God, hidden before now in a mystery. It was a mystery. Nobody knew how was God going to solve this problem. How was God going to take on and, and deal with this problem of this adversary that seemed to be running amok on earth? It was a mystery. The Bible goes on to say it is a secret plan destined before the ages. Before the ages. So before all this happened, God had already destined according to a plan. But that plan was a secret plan. Nobody knew. To bring us into his glory. None of the rulers of this present world order understood it. For if they had they never would have crucified the Lord of shining glory. You see, if they knew that crucifying Christ was activating the plan of God to bring them to a place of defeat, how many know they would not have crucified Christ? Why do you help bring about your downfall? That's what the Bible says. But nobody knew because it was a plan that was in God's heart. It was a secret plan. Apart from the Spirit of God and, and, and Jesus, nobody knew the plans. The angels had no idea about the plans. And this is the Aguiruku version of that part of the Bible. You know where the Bible says when Jesus was born that the, the shepherds suddenly saw a choir of angels just appear and start singing. How many remember, remember that scripture? Yeah. Now, Aguiruku's version is this. I, I sincerely believe that this what because the angels don't know. They didn't know what was happening. How is God going to end this thing? What is his plan? What is he going to do? Is Satan going to roam around? And the angels are watching. And then all of a sudden, as they peer down from heaven, they suddenly realize, hang on a second. It's that child that, that Mary was carrying. That's the answer. And as they looked in excitement, they fell down to the earth. That's my version. And when they arrived on the earth, when they arrived on the earth, and they saw that they're falling down, they thought, well, we better sing, because this is good news. Go on, give God a clap offering. That's my version. That's my version. Because none of them knew that this was a secret plan in God's heart. God had a plan. Somebody say amen to that. Ephesians 3, verses 9 to 10. So Paul says this, and as I read this particular verse, it just ignited something in me. I said, Paul, you are speaking as if this was me. He says, my passion is to enlighten every, every person to this divine mystery. It was hidden for ages past until now and kept a secret in the heart of God, the creator of all. This, the purpose of this was to unveil before every throne and rank of angelic orders in the heavenly realm God's full and diverse wisdom revealed through the church. What was Paul saying? He says, I'm just passionate about letting everybody know that this thing that was a mystery has now been revealed to us. 
And this mystery that is revealed to us that was kept a secret in the heart of God, it was kept a secret because at an appointed time, God was going to show to the angelic rulers, the, the principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness, the spiritual wickedness in high places, to Satan himself, that I am going to deal with you with the church. Can someone say amen? amen. And you know, for Satan, this must have been the height of it. Must have driven him insane that God chooses to engage him, deal with him. In the first instance, he was dealt with by an archangel. He can understand that. This is some, someone of ranking. He, he understands that because, you see, the truth is that angels don't get us human beings. And you can't blame them. You know, they are obedient. They do what they're supposed to do. They go where they are sent. They are not involved in iniquity. Those who are involved in iniquity have been cast out. And then God creates this being in his image and his likeness. And the being sins, turns against God, becomes rebellious. And you know what Satan is saying? I didn't do as, as bad as they did. You kicked me out. Look at what they do. You sent your son to die for them. He says, I can't understand why you're so concerned with man. And why you visit him. Guess what God says to him? It's not your business. I choose to have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. Amen? And so, so he's seething with anger. Because now God tells him that those people that you think are lily-livered, weak, unstable, insecure, that keep going and coming, it is those very same people that I am going to use to deal with you. And what now compounds the matter? Now you will understand why he has a vendetta against you and I. Is that when he was kicked out of heaven, there was a vacancy in heaven. In the sense that his assignment was to orchestrate the worship of God. He was built for it, wired to do it, designed to do it. And he's kicked out of heaven. Obviously, there's a vacancy in heaven. How many agree? Now, when there's a vacancy in a job, what do you do? You fill the vacancy. Now, to his shock and horror, God does not appoint another angel, but God leaves the vacancy open. Because God knows that that vacancy today is being filled by his church. So when Shola leads us in worship to worship God, and we worship God, and God sits in heaven and receives the worship, guess who is seething with anger? Because he's saying, not only did I get thrown out, not only are they being used against me, they have now also taken my job. Give God a clap of it. And he ends on this note, Paul. He says, verse 11 and 12, Ephesians 3, this perfectly wise plan, that's this plan, was destined from eternal ages. It was destined before the world was created. In eternity past, 
God who sees the end from the beginning had known that we will have an adversary. He will have an agenda. He will seek to steal, kill, and destroy. He will be devious, wicked, and evil. And this God had what the Bible calls a perfectly wise plan. And that plan, the Bible says, was fulfilled completely in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that now we have boldness through him and free access as kings before the Father because of our complete confidence in Christ's faithfulness. What is the assurance I have as I take on all comers, as I establish God's kingdom in my life, as I come against Satan, his cohorts, his disciples, and everything else he has planned? What is the confidence that a mere mortal who is full of frailties and weaknesses and failings has standing against an archangel and an organized hierarchy of wickedness? What is the assurance that I have that he can throw anything at me, but I will counter it with what I have and what I have been given? What is the assurance that I have that what he intends for me cannot come to pass, but what God intends for me shall come to pass? What's the assurance that I have that he came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I can stand in the truth that I know and declare that I have life and I have it more abundantly? The assurance that I have is not anything in my own strength, but it is in the finished work of Calvary. I know for a truth that at the cross of Calvary, he was defeated. I know for a truth that Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, descended into hell and wrested control, the keys from him. I know for a truth that Jesus sits in heaven victorious at the right hand of, the, of God the Father. And I know for a truth that I am seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know then for a truth that I am not just fighting to get victory. I am fighting because victory was gotten, got, gotten for me at the cross of Calvary. I know that people might say I'm victorious, but they don't understand. I am not just victorious, I am triumphant because I received the victory that was won for me at the cross of Calvary. And that's how I know that in this war, I come out at the end victorious. Can someone say amen to that? Give God a clap offering. Let's end with this scripture. James, the fourth chapter, verses six to seven. Let's end with this scripture. But he continues to pour out more and more grace upon us. Someone say amen. For it says, God resists you when you're proud but continually pours out grace when you are humble. So then surrender to God. Stand up to the devil and resist him, and he will turn away from you. One translation would say, submit to, the, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Can someone say amen to that? Amen. Go and give God a clap offering. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We bless you, O God. We glorify your name. Let's bow our heads. Is surrender to God. And then you can stand up to the devil. Resist him and he will flee. What's the Bible saying? It's not in your own strength. No. None of us is equipped to stand against someone who has been there for 6,000 years. Knows every trick of the trade. None of us is equipped for it. 
But in Christ, we've overcome. And so with all heads bowed, if you haven't surrendered to him, then he can continue to pour out grace upon grace unto you. So with all heads bowed, you're listening online or watching online. You're in this place, uh, this particular auditorium. You're in the overflow facility where some of the young people are, the younger people are. You want to give your life to Christ. You want to settle it once and for all. In a sense, you want to be prepared for this war. You want to know that you're not the one fighting the war. He has a responsibility for his own, but you have to give yourself to be his own. If you would slip your hand up wherever you are. Anybody saying, please pray for me. I would love to pray for you as you settle this once and for all, that you are a child of his. You are in the kingdom, in his kingdom. He has responsibility for you. I see that hand. Keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. Anybody else? In the overflow facilities, anybody else? Online, will you just follow the instructions that are, that are, be, that are, that are coming to you now? I see that hand. Anybody else? You want to settle it once and for all. You want to give your life to Christ. Anybody else? Father, we just thank you and bless you. Go on, slip that hand up. Slip that hand up. Anybody else? I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you. I see that hand at the back. Slip it up. Slip it up. Slip it up. Keep it up for a second. Can I have members of the ministry team, please? Please. Members of the ministry team. One person to each person whose hand is up. Please. Where's the ministry team? Where is the ministry team? Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else? It's a hand. Anybody else? Yeah, anybody else? In the overflow facility. Are there people from the overflow facility? Yeah, hands up there. He's coming. Fantastic. Bless you. Oh, God, I'm going to give you a hug. Come, come, come. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Can I have, can I have one of the team come? Can I hand him to you? Bless you. Anybody else? Slip your hand up wherever you are. Wherever you are, come, come. Can I, come, come, come on. I'm, I'm handing them today one-on-one to a member of the team. Come, one-on-one. Ayo, yeah, great stuff. I need a member of, I need someone. I need someone. Hallelujah. Amen. Bless you. Welcome. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Amen. Go on, let's celebrate. They've come back home. They've come back home. Anybody else? Come back home. You want to come back home? Father, we thank you. There are people in there? Amen. Fantastic. Welcome home. Welcome home. Come, just want to shake your hand. Welcome home. Welcome home. Bless you. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We thank you for your faithfulness. We worship you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.